Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. The Contrarians is brought to you by Smarks Like Us Clothing and Avnio Films. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter at JamesAlexMattis and at Avnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Yes, this is the main theme from Star Wars Episode 3. Why, you might ask? It's simple. It's the best film in the franchise. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and of course I am joined as always by my buddy Julio. Julio, how are you doing today? I am doing great. A little sad because I was kind of hoping that this movie wouldn't be as good as I remember it being. And it turned out that it was great, even better maybe than I remember it. And uh, and that just makes the injustice of its low rating even uh, you know more painful. Well, that's both of us. I remember when this came out, we both kind of saw it and... It randomly came up. It's not like a movie you really talk about in a social circle or anything, but we were both like, yeah, I really like it. So it was a definitely a unique experiment coming back to it because I didn't know if it was going to hold up and if it was just like one of those one-time freak viewings. It was those magical moments where I quoted the movie not expecting to get any sort of acknowledgement from anybody, and then from all across the room, you just pointed at me. <laughs> that is right. It's like um, Crazy Stupid Love. When I watched it the first time, I, I'm afraid to rewatch it because I think in my mind, there's no way it can be as fucking terrible as I remember it. <laughs> but you know, but you can always you don't need to rewatch it. You need to ask me, and I'll be like, "Yep, it's, it's just as bad." A lot of people thought that our current movie was just as bad as we think. Uh, crazy stupid love is for example robbie collin from news of the world said this 1980s set comedy was shot in 2007 and has been sitting on the shelf ever since the damn thing sold it's almost retro twice over there's a lot of people trying to be uh, cute and funny here uh henry fitzerbert from daily express he just says whoever thought we'd care well, well, we do. Charles Kaplinsky from Illinois Times says, Tonight, better left to yesterday. What the hell? Zing. <laughs> Thomas Loop from Hollywood.com says, Remember how funny the 80s were? This movie doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that made me laugh even if I disagree. And then Marjorie Baumgarten from our very own Austin Chronicle said, Take Me Home Tonight, sadly, plays like something that's perennially stocked in the remainder bins at Suncoast Video. Rude. Person. Rude and dated, because you know what? <laughs> There's no video stores anymore. There are not. But yes, for this week's episode of The Contrarians, episode number 17, correct? Correct. We are going back to the 1980s, a time of big hair great music and apparently a lot of cocaine the best time ever we are joining the topher grace as i said on our last episode i wouldn't really call it a vehicle but just the topher grace steered ship take me home tonight i think it's it's co-piloted by dan fogler he carries his weight i'll say that that's one thing i didn't remember from the first viewing but we began take me home tonight at a record store in some point in the 1980s, I think we surmised it was around 88. Yeah, we paused the movie and actually tried to do the math just to make sure that we were right. Oh, it is the 80s. We were immediately introduced to our main characters of Matthew, played by Topher Grace, his twin sister, Wendy, played by Anna Ferris, and his best friend, Barry, played by Dan Fogler, who, let's just get this out of the way already, if there was ever a man born to play the best friend role in a film, it's Dan Fogler. Yes, I mean, he's been misused in most movies, but this one just hits the, it hits the sweet spot. Him in that 80s slicked back hair suit, it just looks perfect. Yep. 
we find out right away that Matthew is working at the aforementioned Suncoast Video, which you did, weren't familiar with Suncoast Video. Nope. Okay. I, Blockbuster. That's about as far as I knew of chains, video chains, before I moved to the States. When I was growing up and before like the whole digital age came, the Suncoast Video was the big one. The, every time I went to the mall, I had to go to Suncoast. So I was immediately envious of our main character, Matt, here. He, living the life. He is living the life. We find out that he's recently graduated from college, and he's referring to his job at Suncoast as a pit stop on the road of life. He's talking to, I guess, someone that he knew from high school who's talking about all his experiences traveling and all the fun he's had since he graduated from college. And wouldn't you know it, in right away, in walks Tori, who is played by Teresa Palmer. We find out that Tori was his big crush in high school, correct? Yes. The girl that he always had a crush on and he always wanted to ask out, but he never had the right moment to do it, which is something that I think we can all relate to. Absolutely. So immediately he sheds his Suncoast video vest and name tag, and he just pretends to be a customer. Kind of a creepy thing, but it turns out working out pretty well for him, where he just stands next to her and you know waits to be recognized by her. Is it really creepy if it works? I think it's creepy when it doesn't work and you keep doing it. But if it that's true, if, if it works, I mean, everybody by the end of the movie, everybody's in a much happier place. So I think that it was it was worth it. Maybe suspicion of creepiness because it turns out for the best. It was the first bold chance he took, but would not be the last of this film. Yeah, I mean, Topher Grace in this movie, he is just like the poster child for awkwardness. But at the same time, throughout the movie, he becomes this beacon of hope for nerds and and socially awkward kids everywhere. He becomes the example of, you know, what could be if you just take that opportunity and just pretend that you don't work where you actually work. If you just lie and cheat a little bit, maybe steal a car, do some cocaine, eventually uh, good things will come. Tori is picking out a movie, I guess. We don't see which one, but she's wanted to check out and she's ringing the bell and Matt's the only person working and they're kind of catching up along this whole way and she's waiting to be checked out, but... He informs her that he works at Goldman Sachs, that he's a banker, which obviously is not true. And then he just tells her just to take the video and he'll pay for it himself, which I don't know if that really holds up because... You don't know for sure. (laughs) This is is late 80s. Were you really paying attention? You were, because when they showed the Appetite for Destruction banner, you're like, hold on, what year is this? Well, see, I know Guns N' Roses. I mean, not know Suncoast video, but I know uh, Guns N' Roses. Fair enough. He immediately calls his best friend Barry to inform him, you know, oh my god, guess what I just saw? I saw Tori, and she's going to this party night, and she said we should come. And he's in the middle of trying to sell a car. We find out that his job is a car salesman. And Dan Fogler here just captures the screen in just a comedic genius way. Not an easy task, because uh, his boss at the car dealership is uh, Saul Goodman. Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk, who gets only like two shots in the entire movie. That was weird. Yeah, (laughs) But, but at the same time, he's like a huge comedic presence. But Dan Fogler has no problem commanding the, that scene uh, with, with Odenkirk in the background. You, What's his line? Bottom line this? Bottom line it for me. Yeah. That, that is his ineptitude is on display, though, as he's trying to pretend that he's talking to his boss on the phone, despite the fact that his boss is standing right behind him. The customer catches on to this and says, you know, I'm not buying your bullshit or this car today. So he storms out. And I guess this is where they'd fire Dan Fogler, right? Yeah, that is that was kind of harsh. I mean... That's not ideal, but it's not like he was stealing from the company or anything. It was weird, too, because we don't get a scene of him actually being fired. Bob Odenkirk just makes a slashing motion across his neck, and I guess that's really all you need. Well, it was the late 80s. (laughs) I guess unemployment was less of a concern, like people filing for unemployment. You could just fire them for whatever. We then go back with Matthew and Wendy, as well as Barry, at a Franklin family dinner. We're introduced at this point to Billy Franklin, Bill Franklin, 
played by Michael Bain, Kyle Reese. Man, we were talking about what a strong presence he just has on the screen. He played. I don't know how much of this is just that's the way he is in real life, mm-hmm. and how much it is that the the Kyle Reese character was so just vital to his his life as an actor that he could just never shake it off completely. <laughs> so this is in a way. This is what if Kyle Reese hadn't died in Terminator and he had just grown up to have his own family and he would still be like a hard ass and trying to get everybody ready for the apocalypse because that's some tough parenting that he delivers in this movie yeah he's right away voicing his extreme displeasure at his son matthew topher grace because he's working at suncoast video and he says you know i didn't spend a quarter of my savings to put you through mit just for you to work at the mall he's not pulling any punches but yeah there's definitely some kyle reese in this i think he kind of sees matt as john connor his you know illegitimate son and Wants better for him. Because uh, it, it said that Matt went to MIT and he's asking about engineering jobs. He's pushing him toward being the salvation of the world. He knows kind of it's coming in a way. We then go to a shot of Wendy in her room with a letter and she calls Matthew in and she reveals to Matt that she had applied to Cambridge for her master's degree and wasn't wanting to open this letter yet because she didn't know what to do because of her boyfriend, who we haven't met yet, but named Kyle and she's not sure if he's going to want to move with her. You know, you can tell Matthew is not cool with this Kyle dude and doesn't think his sister should be with him, that she offers a lot more. To be fair, America hadn't met Kyle or the actor portraying Kyle yet, but they would in a big way later on. (laughs) Let's take a moment to talk about Anna Faris, who plays Matthew's sister, because I think most of our male audience probably remembers back in the day when they had a huge crush on Anna Faris. Really? Yeah, come on, don't make me feel like I was the only one there. (laughs) I will tell you, Anna Ferris was in a lot of terrible movies, but she yes. was always the best thing about them. I can, yeah. <laughs> Awkward pause when you're trying to remember. We were first introduced to her in uh, Scary Movie, correct? Scary Movies, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't really care much for the Scary Movie movies, but I thought that she had good comic timing. She was really cute. And her I parody of Nev Campbell's character is very yeah. humorous. Yeah. yeah. And, and the House even, Bunny, classic. Uh, yeah, even something like The House Bunny. I always wanted to do well. Mm-hmm. And it always feels like the movie lets her down. Whereas in this movie, she actually, the movie just carries her through the, you know, the entire time. It doesn't let her down. It, she, it lets her have her own like dramatic moments, her own story. And, and she's really good in it. She really gets to flex her acting muscles in this. Which yeah. a lot of roles that she's taken, like Observe and Report, that really just demeaned her. Like, no, here she's a woman taking control of her destiny. But Not, she's scared, too. She's afraid. Right, but it's something that we can relate to. All her other roles, she's just... She doesn't have to carry the comedy in this movie, whereas mm. uh, in all the other roles, she has to be like super wacky. But here, they let her; they give her the heavy stuff. And it's brilliant casting uh, on the part of the filmmakers here because it is like a comedic all-star team. And then you think she's going to be another just huge like comedic wind in this, but she really is the dramatic role. Yeah, no, they told her, listen, don't worry about the comedy. We got Fogler. We got Topher Grace. Yes, we need you to sell the, the, the other stuff. Yeah. So after this discussion, you know, it's just time to get ready for the party and the trio of Wendy, Matthew, and Barry are taking off. And Barry is already, he's pre-gamed a bit too hard. I think he's kind of down in the dumps about getting fired. and uh, We've all been there. We, we have, and the general state of his life. And he gets this really cool moment where he's just chugging, I think, a bottle of champagne in the backseat of the car and explains to them, I didn't go to college. I gave my life to this job and they fired me. So tonight I'm catching up on drinking and promiscuous sex. And you kind of you, you get behind his character at this point. Yep. The beginning of his character arc here, the beginning of his story, we've all been there. Where he goes, it's something that we could only hope, we can only wish that we we had the balls to go to. In, in our life, let alone one night. Yes. He informs Wendy to turn right up at the light ahead and 
this is where the pre-gaming too hard, I think, kind of takes hold of him because he goes to the dealership that that day he had been fired from, and he's going to steal a car, a big, nice red sports car. He knows where they keep the keys. I think he said they were in Bob Odenkirk's desk. Yeah, he knows the alarm codes. Yeah, or uh, so we think. Yeah, it never even crosses his mind. That, well, you know, he'd been drinking, but it never even crosses his mind that they would have changed the codes already. So they get in. His keys, it's like it's the 80s, but come on. And they didn't even take his keys, so he's able to get in, and he tries to disarm the alarm. But they changed the code. He's like, they never, they never trusted me. And Topher Grace says, I wonder why. And so the alarm starts going off. Topher Grace, Matthew tries to flee, but Wendy locks him out of the car. And yeah, she she makes that choice of saying, you have to grow up, little brother. Well, they're twins. They're both the same age. But so it's little. But yeah, no, it definitely emotionally, mentally and yes. emotionally. Yeah. I think this is the first sign, or the second sign rather, of um, them helping each other grow. And making them like take the next step in their life. So he's just like, fuck it. And Dan Fogler gets in the car and Barry, you know, before he starts it, he says, no, top down. As the alarm's going off and police are surely on the way, he wants to put the top down. He and Matthew jump in the car, speed away. They're on their way to the party. And at which point, you know, Topher Grace opens the glove box and there's a big bag of cocaine in there. And now, and now the party started. The party has begun. Matthew conceals this bag of cocaine in his blazer as they pull up to Kyle Masterson's party. And at this point, we, America, I wish this would have come out in 2007 so we could have met him four years earlier, but Chris Pratt enters our lives here. That might be the main reason they delayed the the release of the movie. The world was not ready for Chris Pratt yet. <laughs> Gave him a few more years. Chris Pratt doing his best Patrick Wilson in, in this movie with hmm. the hair, the, the bravado. Yeah, the bravado, not being a completely pleasant yet a very handsome man. I could see the, the influences in his work. The big centerpiece of Kyle Masterson's Labor Day party is the ball. It's this big, just metal. I couldn't really tell what else it was made of, but apparently it's a tradition. That when these big parties happen, someone gets in the ball and rolls down this big hill. Well, I'm calling bullshit there because he seems so surprised when it actually happens at the end. I think the tradition is that they they dare people to get in the ball and roll down the street, but nobody ever actually goes through with it. Fair enough. Matthew's scouring the party trying to find Tori because that's where she said she would be. And he has his game face on. When we're introduced to Carlos out of nowhere, he literally runs right into Matthew. Carlos is played by Dimitri Martin in a role that I completely forgot about. But my God, you want to talk about comedy chops here, man. He he steals the movie. for. He literally has two scenes and has the most memorable two scenes. Yeah, yeah. He puts up a fight against Dan Fogler for most memorable character uh, of the movie. And this is uh, one perfect example of the movie's brilliance because they're not afraid of portraying a handicapped person in a negative light. He straight up is an asshole in a wheelchair, Mm -hmm. but that's why it's so funny. He informs Matthew that he was hit by a drunk driver shortly after graduation, but it's okay now because he gets better parking and gets laid a lot uh, and has the brilliant line of, I have mixed feelings about hills now. <laughs> every every line he says is pure gold. And of course, he actually works at Golden, uh, Goldman, Sachs. Goldman Sachs, which uh, comes he, to play later. He asks Matthew where do you work, and he says Goldman Sachs. He says, no, you don't because I fucking work there. Which, yes, this actually, Carlos will come back to save the day at a later point. The party kind of goes on, and it hasn't reached its apex yet when Barry's just wandering around and comes up to Matthew and says, give me the cocaine. I guess he just wants to try it. And At this point in his night, why not, you know? That's the other thing the movie do, does really well. It's just put you in that mindset of being the odd guy, the odd man out at the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've never been there, 
I don't believe you. <laughs> but if you, you have to been there at least once where you're, you're at a party and everybody else seems to be having a great time, having found their place, and you don't, and you keep trying to like join groups and it's not happening. And Topher Grace at least can kind of get by because he looks like Topher Grace, but Dan Fogler is fucked. <laughs> you can tell that he does not belong at that party from the very beginning. So I, I sympathize with him. He has cocaine readily available. Why not? Takes it into the bathroom and kind of gives himself the motivational speech about it. He begins just doing a lot of cocaine and thinks it's not working. <laughs> when it finally kicks in, the movie, that it walks that, that fine line where it just tells you, listen, cocaine is not bad. <laughs> in moderation. In moderation. <laughs> because Fogler starts having a good time after that. Yeah. And you feel good for him. And it's not really like he hurts anybody right off the bat. Yeah. Interwoven with this is Matt finally locating Tori, but it's in a group of people. And it leads to just pure awkwardness, as which I guess is Topher Grace's wheelhouse. You know, He's trying to have a conversation with her. I believe he had checked their yearbook earlier in the evening to see what her interests were and tries to start talking about wind sailing. And she just is having none of it. Yeah, I mean, obviously she's changed since graduation and whatever she wrote, if it wasn't uh, bullshit to begin with, it's long gone, which leads to, uh, like I told you while we were watching it, the line I quoted the most from this movie <laughs> after watching it and nobody got it was just uh, Topher Grace after he says that he went surfs and she's like, oh, I don't. And she doesn't care. And he just goes, yeah, uh, well, wind. Fuck that. <laughs> that is such an amazing line, but out of context, it just doesn't work. So his first time at bat, he strikes out with Tori, and he goes to recoup himself and hopefully come back stronger. But we go back inside, and the cocaine is in full swing with Barry as he just is a dancing machine on the floor. And you couldn't have picked a better actor to do this particular scene. Maybe. Maybe. If Chris Farley had still been with us, I think maybe he could have pulled it off. Well, Josh Gad, I mean, he's... he's, he's but this was 2007. Josh Gad would have been, you know, a wee lad at this point. Struggling. He, he would have been... a struggling actor. He was on the set of The Rocker at this point in time. But Barry, you know, he's coked out. He's dancing. He's probably drunk. He's really horned up. And he's just hollering at all the girls on the dance floor. And at this point, he sets his eye, his radar rather, on Ashley, played by Michelle Trachtenberg. You want to talk about someone who picks their projects, you know, few and far between. She's also a product of uh, one of your personal favorites, Eurotrip. Yes. Well, before that, she was Buffy Summers. I think that's the thing. Once you've been Buffy's sister, yeah, she was Dawn Summers, not Buffy Summers. But yeah, once you've been Buffy's sister, you really have to pick and choose what how you follow that up. As far as I know, her career consists of Eurotrip. Harriet the Spy. Harriet the Spy. <laughs> uh, that movie where she's an ice skater. And this kind of cameo on Take Me Home Tonight. And she's completely, like, I'm not too familiar with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but is she a big goth like she is in this movie here? Oh, no, 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 no. She's, she did a 180 for this so movie. So this is a big departure for yes. her. She plays the black hair, black outfit, nonconformist goth. In fact, if you know her from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you kind of feel a little dirty when you're seeing her talk to Dan Fogler about getting naked and all this stuff. So, yeah, good kudos to the casting director. Matt's on the prowl again, and I think he's waiting to make his second move on Tori when she actually makes a move on him. Some you know pretty boy frat guy is trying to hit on her, and she's having none of it, so she just hollers at Matt and is like, hey, you were going to show me the thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, the waterfall. And it's kind of cute, but it's still kind of awkward, but that's you know what Topher Grace is here to do. It's not a, an original story. It's nothing new. This is basically Topher Grace learning that it's always going to be awkward as long as he's pretending, and as soon as he is himself, then he's going to win the girl over. But what makes it work is just his performance and just how 
utterly awkward he is as a person. I wonder that when you talk to Topher Grace in, in real life, he's just like that too, like always saying the wrong thing and, and backtracking. I remember watching this movie and thinking he is the natural heir to Ben Stiller. The Ben Stiller crown of awkwardness will be passed down to Topher Grace. That was when I saw the movie, I don't know, four years ago, however long ago. It didn't quite happen because Ben Stiller has refused to give up the crown of awkwardness. <laughs> but when he finally does, I think Topher Grace will still be available. Hopefully. And Hopefully. Topher Grace, by the looks of things, hasn't really aged much. And I don't think he's done anything since... Uh, or no, he was in... Um, Spider-Man 3? He was in Spider-Man 3, and then he did Predators with Adrian Brody. And most recently, he was in Interstellar. So What? He, yeah. <laughs> what? He wasn't Interstellar? Yeah, he was. Who was he? He was the scientist friend of Jessica Chastain. Hey, are you telling me that Topher Grace played a scientist somewhere? Yes. <laughs> no, do you really not remember him being I, Interstellar? I do not remember him at all. And I like Interstellar. Yeah, Interstellar's great. Yeah, so Topher Grace, you want to talk about, much like the incomparable Michelle Trachtenberg, Topher Grace just chooses the big hits, you know. He's got a good agent. He does. I think he agents himself. Oh, there we go. Inside, Barry's horniness has like gotten the better of him in that he's danced up on some dude's girlfriend, which naturally, as it did in the 80s, it segues to a dance battle. Yes, that's one of the reasons why the 80s was so awesome. You could just settle things dancing. It was a simpler time. Yeah, before Obama. As you would guess in this situation, the gentleman that Barry has challenged to a dance battle is a fantastic dancer, whereas Barry, at this point, shirt untucked, you know, he's got his tie tied around his head, is just busting out the worst possible dance moves. But it's a cool moment of friendship because everyone's booing him, but Matthew's still, like, cheering him on. And Matthew cheers him on, and Michelle Trackenberg also seems pretty amused by, by the show. Eventually, it breaks down when Barry kicks his opponent in the nuts. You know, I guess he knew he had lost at this point, so what better way to wreak vengeance? That's a cheap joke in anyone else's hands, but the delivery, the comic timing of both the filmmaker and the performer in the scene, that completely tells it. You did not see a kick to the balls coming, and that's why it's so effective. Twice. Someone getting hit in the groin is funny in any language. It is, but... But, but it's funnier <laughs> when Dan Fogler does exactly. it. Not so much when, when it happens in the Adam Sandler movie, but for some reason, it works here. You have to know how to control the audience, and once you have them in the palm of your hand, give them the shot to the groin. And yes. Not, you can't oversaturate the market. We go from the high points of comedy, though, to the sad points of like just emotional tyranny with Matthew as he has this complete breakdown after misunderstanding something that was going on. He Someone at the party was choking, and he thought it was Tori, but it was not, so he just picks her up, gives her the Heimlich maneuver, and pretty much just physically assaults her in front of the party on a total miscommunication, which leads to him just having this huge breakdown. Again, king of awkwardness, Topher Grace, or I guess king in waiting, Topher, <laughs> Topher Grace, he completely sells it because that could be very clunky in, in a lesser performer's hands, but he completely sells the honesty of bearing his soul, not entirely because he still, he doesn't tell her that he doesn't work at Goldman Sachs, but but he just opens his heart. And we were all like, I wish I'd done that with my high school crush. Because it works. It works. As yeah, she, just... she was just about to write him off, and then she's interested again. It works as she starts laughing and kind of is smitten by his honesty. And um, a song comes on. She says, I love this song. And he doesn't at first get the clue that she wants to dance. But... They've just been talking about how he, he should dance with her. And she picks up the hint that he wasn't really putting out and, and tells him, oh, I love this song. And then it takes him forever to realize that, oh, she wants to dance. 
And they start dancing, and he is about to ask her out, but he just can't muster up the courage yet. Yeah, he takes too long. Honestly, that just proves that he wasn't ready at that point in the movie to do it. Because if you can't do it when dancing to awesome 80s music, then it's not your time yet. It's like that 70s show. It took a few seasons for Eric and Donna to get together. Right. I think that's just a, that's a staple of Topher Grace's characters. They take their the, sweet time. The longing and the desire. And he you know, he knows how to really They play connect. the long game. Yeah. Not by choice, but just by their nature. After the song wraps up, Kyle gets onto the stage at his party where the DJ is positioned as Chris Pratt calls up Wendy, Anna Ferris, his girlfriend, and he just proposes to her, kinda out of the blue. She starts freaking out and naturally says yes, but Matthew's in the crowd just, you know, shaking his head and saying no. Because he knows this is a very bad decision for his sister, which uh, it will reveal itself to be. Yes. Uh, Come on, Eileen starts playing, and the visuals go in slow motion, and everybody's clapping and dancing, and the camera zooms in to Topher Grace, just not being happy about this at all. And it just proves that you can score anything with an 80s soundtrack. <laughs> Everything will work, no matter what the emotional undercurrent of the scene is. If you have an 80s song in there, it will work out. But it also speaks to the brilliance of this film and its ability to hit on all emotional levels because Come On Eileen by you know, the Dexys Midnight Runners, that's like one of the happiest songs of all time. But you're too busy just thinking about like you're feeling for Matthew, but more for Wendy because she's just making a terrible decision. Yeah, she's like the best sister. Her portrayal, it makes you want to have a twin. And, and you're really worried because you can tell that Chris Pratt, even if you didn't know Chris Pratt the way we know Chris Pratt now, at, at, you know, in the year 2015. But back then, you knew that, that there was something off about him and that there's no way Chris Pratt as an actor always plays characters with, with various layers. And so there was no way that he was as nice as he seemed on the outside, just as, as his character in Parks and Rec is never as dumb as he looks on the outside, <laughs> and, and his Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy is never as heroic as he looks on the The same thing. This guy, there's no way that he has it as together, uh, that he's as, as, as loving of Wendy as he seems to be. Quick sidebar, I would love to see a remake of The Savages with uh, Topher Grace and Anna Ferris playing the brother and sister role. You know, I've never seen The, the Savages. I've heard and I've seen clips if the savages I would watch that movie yeah it would be fantastic maybe Josh Gad can play like the third guy who, who was the third guy it was Taylor no, I'm talking about Phil Seymour Hoffman Laura Linney oh never mind okay what am I thinking of the Oliver Stone movie that's savages well excuse me <laughs> for you know missing the article yeah uh, that was Taylor Kish and Kickass and Blake Lively okay and none of them are related Right, because they have a threesome at the beginning, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Okay. Which, yeah, I wouldn't be down for a Josh Gad and a Ferris Topher Grace threesome. I would if the context was right. If it was scored to come on Eileen, maybe. You can do anything with 80s music. We go outside as Barry is metaphorically licking his wounds. He's kind of embarrassed, and I think he got caught with a punch somewhere in there because he's got a wine cooler on his face icing down what looks to be a potential black eye. He looks kind of down on it, and I think his coke rush has kind of died down. But Ashley, Michelle Trachtenberg, approaches and tells him how cool she thinks he is and how anti-establishment, and he just asks her, hey, want to get naked? <laughs> Which Again, that just, that's the movie telling you a little bit of coke goes a long way. <laughs> Because he he did some dancing, he impressed the girl, he got into a fight of sorts and, and made it through. That's I would call that a good night. So far, and his night's just begun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Barry's character, more than anybody else in this movie, he is really the soul of the 80s. This movie is a love letter 
to the 80s, but also a cautionary tale about the 80s. The 80s was an era of excess. An era of Recklessness. Yes, you had a lot of fun, but then you paid the consequences, namely the 90s. The namely thing, Ace of Base. <laughs> yes. So the thing about the 80s is we had it all and then we threw it away. Mm-hmm. So Barry's thing is the same. He just doesn't know when to stop in this movie. But Ashley says, you know, find me at the end of the night. You know, maybe it'll be a different story. And then she licks his face. And walks off. Again, we've all been there. <laughs> Matt takes Wendy aside in the party, I guess, into like a back room. He asks her, can I talk to you? And point blank, just don't do it. Don't marry him. You know, because at this point, we still don't know if she got accepted to Cambridge or not. Right. She she, she will not open that letter. Mm-hmm. Here, you get Anna Ferris carrying the scene, you know, pulling her weight and everybody else's weight. In it. Coming yeah. off very polished. Yes. Mm-hmm. She, she just shows you that if you thought that all I could do was like scream parodies, no. There's there's more to me than this. And she calls him out. It's not the first time and it will not be the last time in the movie that somebody calls Topher Grace on his bullshit because he's very likable and being him being likable might make you overlook the fact that he really is kind of spinning his wheels yeah. and coming up with a lot of excuses for, for his situation. But Anna Ferris, his twin, just calls him out on it. And then he gets nasty with her. Yeah. <laughs> So. He's, he just gets uber defensive. It's at this point Matt decides that he and Barry are going to leave because he gets wind that Tori's leaving. So he stalks her kind of out to the parking lot, hits the uh, the beeper on his car in the hopes of getting her and her friend's attention, which he does. And, of course, they're immediately smitten because his car is a sweet ride. They ask him if they're going to the party out in Beverly Hills, and they play it off like, of course. Now, where's that party again? And Tori's like, well, I know where we're going, so I can just ride with you. Matthew tells Barry, okay, we have to ride with our friends. And they're grossed out until he's like, okay, I've got cocaine on me. (laughs) Barry's the perfect wingman in this movie. He's the perfect friend and the perfect wingman. One of the friends says, okay, well, I'll sit in the back with you, Barry. We go to this big, nice, high-rise house in Beverly Hills where we're introduced to Michael Ian Black's character, Pete, and which what I would probably call the bad guy of the movie. Besides certainty of future, I would call Michael Ian Black (laughs) the bad guy. Yes, because even Chris Pratt, at his most villainous in the movie he's still just a guy he, he he's not he, he doesn't offer any real threat right he he's still kind of he's it's just his nature he's he's a little maybe dumb or a little oblivious to other people's feelings but michael Ian black he he's an adult in this movie so he knows exactly what he's doing and he he is creepy yeah you thought Topher Grace was creepy? No, no. This guy is is way creepy because he comes in with the intention of taking Tori away. Yes, and and, and obviously he's her superior at work, mm-hmm. so he's breaking a lot of rules from the beginning. Of course, it's the eighties, so everything everything goes. He tries to get Matthew just cut out of the situation immediately and catch him on his lie, which is that he works at Goldman Sachs. This is where we get the hint that you know Matthew's really smart because he just comes up with this elaborate yet truthful and factually correct lie about what he does with money and how it would work because he says he works in currencies they established earlier where he runs into uh carlos i guess carlos asks him hey how much is this times this i guess that uh, uh matthew was known in high school for just being good with numbers like doing mental math at the very beginning of the film going through the yearbook we see that he was most brainy you know, it, it sucks because he's called a loser in the movie a few times. And that's just, I feel bad for math people. But at the same time, that is why this movie is inspirational to them. Because if, yeah. even if people think that you're a loser, even if, if, if you are the Topher Grace at the party, you can still come through eventually. You he's, just have to learn how to lie. Yeah, and I'm terrible at math, so he's not a loser to me. <laughs> he's someone I would have wanted befriended in college. But Michael Ian Black's kind of shut up by this, and he doesn't really know, you know, 
what to say and then he asks who he works under and at this point carlos comes back in and kind of saves the day because he actually works at goldman sachs you know says oh yeah i know matt he he works under me so michael ian black's character as soon as he shows up and as villainous as he presents himself to be is immediately shut down yeah well, you see him later dancing and he's dancing like a bad guy so you can tell <laughs> barry's wandering around the party and he's just kind of posted up at the bar where this uh woman you know, established woman, I guess some may call a cougar, sets her eye on him and walks up and asks, is it snowing? And he says, I think it's like 65 degrees outside. She's like, no, do you have cocaine on you? He's like, oh, of course. He he does look like somebody who has cocaine on him because by now... He's sweating, his hair is askew. Yeah, I was thinking about when I, when I saw it and actually have it on my notes. I just wrote, Dan Fogler's hair is like mine because early in the, in the movie, he applies an insane amount of gel or whatever it is mousse. to his hair, mousse to his hair. But it, then by the time they get in the car, it's already kind of fucked up. And then, of course, by this point in the movie, it's so over the place yeah you can tell like the state of the evening and the stage of the party by dan fogler's hair and you can tell how, how much fun they've been having by dan fogler's hair I, I had a friend in college who depending on how much he drank in one night could literally go from clean shave into a five o'clock shadow <laughs> and so we could always tell how raging the party was depending on what his face looked like but she finds out that he has cocaine and they're gonna go off and you know do some together and barry's thinking you know damn i've got this hot girl on my arm from beverly hills so they begin doing some cocaine in a bathroom together, and then this gray-haired, leather-suit-wearing German man named Francis walks in, and it's revealed that he's a friend of Trisha's who just likes to watch her engage with sexual acts with other people. That guy's dressed in leather, right? Like, all yeah. leather? That is creepy. Yeah, especially... That's, that's as creepy as Michael Ian Black in this movie. Given the climate and, you know, summertime, it's got to be just unbearably hot in that. She says, you know, he just wants to watch, and Barry says, I'm going to try this. Reluctantly at first. He, he has she to has place. to take her top off and place her yes. his hands on her breasts. But if I was in Barry's shoes, I would have given it a shot. Well, yeah, that's that's what happened back in the 80s. You found yourself in these situations and you just... Especially you just his character, you know, the place he's at right now, you know, just... Fuck it, why not? Yeah, uh, he's not like Dover Grace's character where he has a goal and he has a very specific thing that he's trying to achieve. In fact, Dover Grace is not even trying to get laid. He just wants uh, this girl's number. Yeah, that's his whole goal. That's how docile and unintimidating his character is in this. Not unintimidating, but just uh, innocent and, I think, well-intentioned would be a better way yeah, of saying yeah, it. Yeah, he's, he's settling very, very low goals for himself, whereas... Barry wants it all. He wants it all because he just got fired, so he just wants to have fun. And he's succeeding, but inevitably it just becomes too much. This guy gets closer and closer as he's having sex with this woman, Trisha, and he tries to touch him at one point, and he gets up and he just says no, no more, and storms out with his pants around his ankles as only Dan Fogler could. Yes, and he again delivers one of those classic lines. Oh, I think it might be later where he meets up with Topher Grace where he just says, all these people are lost or have lost their way. <laughs> these people have lost their way. Again, much like the 80s. I mean, this is like 88, 89, so America in general was losing and their way. The bubble was about to burst. Yep. But before that could happen, Tori reveals to Matt in a moment of you know just confidence and bearing her soul i guess so to speak to him that she hates her job and uh, isn't really sure you know what she wants to do from here and this somehow turns into them playing the penis game which i wasn't sure was around in the 80s but well, apparently it was you know, I, it was and it went underground and it resurfaced at some point because i i've definitely played that a time or two in my I, life i i can say i've never played that penis game <laughs> But basically, it's who you know. It's kind of like a game of chicken to see who can say it the loudest and who can win. And they eventually just start screaming the word "penis" at this party, and I believe that's when it catches the ire of Michael Ian Black, and he just kind of stares up like, "What's going on?" So they have to flee the scene. 
And they run and hop the fence to the next door neighbor's house where we get what I call the big scene of the movie because there's a big trampoline over there. Yeah, this is definitely the big scene. We had a smaller big scene earlier when, when you had the twins confront each other. Uh, but now here, this is where the movie just lays it all down. And much like Tom Hanks in Big as Josh Baskins has to really work to convince his lady to get on the trampoline, it takes Topher Grace a minute or two to get uh, Teresa Palmer on there. It's a big trampoline. Of course it's going to be fucking fun. Once he got her in the trampoline, you know it was inevitable. He sealed the deal. That's that's really... Who can resist a trampoline? That, that's my question. I guess just really pretty women, as two movies have taught me <laughs> in my life. But once they're on, you know, they just start talking and they begin playing a game of truth or dare. 80s version, apparently. It, it opens with truth or dare, but then after that, they're just telling each other what they're going to do. They're mm-hmm. no, they don't ask truth or dare. They just go like, truth, tell me this, or dare, do this. Which, you know what, it, whatever. It's it, a it's, mechanism to lead to them kissing, and not everything in this film could hit it out of the park. So this was the one part where I, I thought it was a bit trying. Yeah, but, but at the same time, it speaks to that truth of once you're in the zone with a girl, or girls, if you're in the zone with a guy, it's all just an excuse. You're just... It's part of the game, mm-hmm. you know. It's it's like you you're not really just tickling each other. It's called foreplay. So, and to be fair with the Matthew character, and especially with how Topher Grace portrays it, it would feel kind of cheated if they just immediately kissed because of the longing and everything that he presents. Right, he we needs, had to build to it. He needs a runway. He needs some time to build up. To it. And and she is the one that has to give him the cue. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it's when you kiss me. And she has to give him kind of a head start for him. He's got the inside track. He's got to come around. Right, but now of course once they kiss, then it's things on. escalate because <laughs> quickly. Yeah, they're on a trampoline. So if you're making a trampoline, I think the next step is trampoline sex. You who knows when this is going to happen again. So if you are on the trampoline already, you have to make the most of it. From the highest of highs to what is about to be the lowest of lows, we go to Kyle and Wendy, and they've. Stepped aside into the restroom at Kyle's house, and Wendy is expressing to Kyle just her worry about her letter from Cambridge and what they're going to do now that they're engaged. As Kyle keeps talking about, I believe they bought a condo that they're getting ready to move in. Yeah, the they have they have this story that they they've been telling all around the party about how they got caught having sex by his grandma, and that led into the dad putting in the down payment for a condo. I guess so they would stop having sex <laughs> at grandma's, <laughs> and it ends. It always ends with the punchline with Wendy delivering the punchline of I guess we screw ourselves into the market or something. They're way too young to be at that stage where they have just one story that they keep telling yeah, over and that again. is perfectly timed that they always tell it the exact same way really quickly we get an insight to just the uh, intelligence differential between the two because kyle's just an idiot i don't think he even knows where cambridge is or right, what he it thinks, is he thinks it's in the valley that's right and so she asks him to open the letter and it's revealed in the harshest of ways that she was rejected from Cambridge as Kyle gets really excited as he's reading the letter. There was, there was this pretty smart filmmaking because, you know, he says it. He's reading the letter. He's like, oh, we regret whatever. And, of course, your mind goes right away to, oh, he's lying because he's an asshole. Yeah. But then you get a shot off the letter. And the letter does say, we regret to inform you. So he was not lying. That's just the harsh truth. Because you know what? It might have been the late 80s, but it was still a long way from where we are now. And women did not have as many opportunities as we did. So even Cambridge was a little sexist uh, when it came to accepting people. So this is, you know, a huge wedge between the two because Wendy's devastated and Kyle, you know, I think is just kind of over the moon about it. I, I thought that there was enough proof that, that this is a movie that's more than people think of. A lesser movie would have paired up Anna Ferris, the Wendy character, with Dan Fogler. 
by the end because they're having fun at the beginning and they're you you care for both of them so ideally by the end you'll be like oh that's cute they found each other but no this movie takes Wendy on her own path and it takes Barry down a well pale. yeah but Barry was, he was doomed to explore the 80s at their worst and their best in a way we go back to the trampoline where you know it's post coitus cuddles on the trampoline and you know like a lot of times right after climax of sex the truth comes out inevitably and it's at this point that Matthew tries to explain to Tori that he's not a banker. He works at Suncoast because he thinks it's the right time, which he could have chosen a little bit better time. But I think he's also guilt-written at this point. I think it's just the story he, of Matthew's life that he just can never figure out when to do anything. Yeah, he's he, he's probably raised Catholic and he has that guilt just crippling him. But on top of that, if he is to be believed, because she asks him, how, how many times have you done this? And he says three and a half. Now, I don't think not even like the greatest lover ever has had sex on a trampoline three and a half times, not even three times. So he must have been talking just about sex in general. So are you telling me that Topher Grace in this movie, who's in his, what, like mid-20s by now, mm-hmm. he's only had sex three and a half times? Even if he was like super nerdy. He worked at a video store, so you know that there were girls just, you know, throwing themselves at him just to let him rent the R-rated movies or whatever. There is no way, but apparently somehow he's only gotten laid three and a half times. So this time, getting laid with his high school crush on a trampoline, he's not thinking straight. He's just babbling. He was. I was waiting for him to propose to her. Taken way aback. It's like he reached the pinnacle of his life and he didn't know what to do when he was there. Yeah, that, I guess it's time to just tear it all down. It was like he looked in the face of God and God said, you are my most wondrous creation. And he had no idea how to react. He's just like, I'm a fraud. So naturally, she is of the mindset of, well, fuck you. You lied to me just to get in my pants. And he says, no, 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 no. But she's not buying it. She puts her clothes back on, runs back to the party. Matthew's not far behind, gets his clothes on, finds Barry. That's when Barry drops the epic line of these people have lost their way. And they bail. And they're in the car, and Barry's still sifting through the cocaine. And, you know, after a bit, you get kind of worried that he's going to, like, Uma Thurman himself from Pulp Fiction. I mean, that was a lot of cocaine. That was more cocaine than I thought that he had at the beginning. Because he's gone by now through, you know, the original hit that he took. And then... It's clear that he did some more cocaine before he joined Matthew, right before they went to the other party, because he's just, like, rubbing his nose. And then he did cocaine with the woman at at the other party, and now he still has some. He's got a lot, and he definitely knows how to parcel it out. But they're in the car, and Matt reveals to Barry that, you know, he had sex with Tori, and Barry just is freaking out about it, and he's so happy for him. But That's how you know that a friend is a good friend, when they're happy that you got laid. Oh, absolutely. And Matt then tells him, you know, but I told her the truth about who I was. And then Barry just unleashes a visceral diatribe against him about how he can never enjoy himself and never have one night just to enjoy life. And as I told you, my favorite line from the movie says, just put a little relish on your hot dog, which that can apply to so many situations. And again, much like a lot of the comedic timing in this, I don't know if anyone but Dan Fogler could have delivered that as well. Yeah, the only thing that would have made this this scene better if if he had capped with with Topher Grace going, but but what's sex if it's a lie? And he would be like, sex, it's still sex. (laughs) Oh man, I don't know if two films can handle that. (laughs) Barry convinces Matt that he needs to do some cocaine, you know, to just... I don't really remember what his reasoning is. Cause well, it's been working out so well for him. It has. It's turned Barry into, like, you know, ultra Barry, the best possible version of himself. So he's trying to help him. And he says, okay, take the wheel. 
he crouches down to do it and Barry crouches down with him and so no one's watching the road uh, it's kind of funny until it turns horrifying because Matthew says well who's watching the road and they look up and then they kind of fly off like a ditch or a cliff or what is it yes they they entered the nightmarish portion of, of this movie where even if you're having fun uh, you start you start really fearing for the lives and, it's and, almost and, like a dream scene a dreamscape because it, yes. it becomes so terrifying so quickly which is again the, we, You've been doing cocaine for a while. You're bound to hit this moment mm-hmm. where where the reckoning, there's consequences to your actions. They wreck the car, and they're just sitting there trying to regroup and focus and collect themselves. Barry says, it's okay. We didn't lose much cocaine, to which the airbag, you know, the pratfall, uh, explodes in his face, and the cocaine goes everywhere. Matthew says, this couldn't be worse. And then a cop car pulls up behind him, and he's like, I was wrong. Now it can't be worse. And then you hear Michael Bain's voice say, Matthew? And he goes, wow, I was wrong again. <laughs> Just, you know, worst-case scenario for Matthew here. I think if your dad's a cop, that should always be your go-to for worst possible scenario. Anytime that you do something that might be considered breaking the law, my my brain would go specifically to, well, my, if my dad catches me doing it, yeah. I'm fucked. So Bill Franklin, Michael Bain, you know, he's shining the flashlight on him, says, what's happened? You know, this is a stolen car. What's on your face, Barry? And Barry's just over at this point. just says, cocaine. <laughs> they pull Matthew and Barry out of the car, and Michael Bain then just starts beating the shit out of the car with his nightstick. Yeah, if you thought that things escalated quickly between Matthew and his girl when they had sex, well, that's nothing compared to how things escalate between Matthew and his dad. His dad is pissed, and he he really lets Matthew and Barry have it. He tells them, you know, you'll do a few years for you know stealing a car. You'll have to work a job for about two years to pay it off. And then he breaks the windshield and the lights and says maybe three. And this is obviously scaring the shit out of Matthew. He's and never Barry. Seen, yeah. Barry starts crying. And Matthew's never seen a, his dad this way. And it just leads to this really intense and, like I said, nightmarish type scene. It's even shot differently than the rest of the film. Yeah, it, it, everything is darker. Michael Bean channels his most personal Kyle Reese. Th- these are the deleted scenes from Terminator <laughs> where he was just too intense. He's just basically telling Skynet is coming and you need to make up your mind. You need to stop fucking around. He tells Matthew, you know, you need to figure out what the hell you're going to do. You know, what do you want to be? Matthew says, I don't want to know. I don't know what I want to be. I'm sorry. I'm such a failure. And he says, no, son, failures have actually tried. Don't give yourself that much credit. God, that makes you cringe. Shame just washes over Topher Grace. And the rest of us. Because we were so so into the movie. We were so with this guy. And now Michael Bean just told us, well, fuck you too for being with him. The film, you know, builds you up as its audience. And then in one line just tears you down. And, you know, we've been with Matthew the whole time. And he succeeded so far at everything he wanted to do. But... You know, much like Dan Fogler, I don't know if anyone but Michael Bain could have quite tore us down like that. Yeah, I, I just wanted him to tell him, but Dad, I got, I just had sex on a trampoline. Doesn't that count for anything? He says, what is sex without life? <laughs> sex! <laughs> Dan Fogler crying on the other side of the car. It's still sex. As intense as that was and horrifying as it may be, it turns out that they were just fucking with him because they let him go free. It's maybe like 20 seconds, maybe less, of, of comedy coming from Michael Bean because mm-hmm. he, he has just a really serious role throughout the movie. But yet when he reveals that he was just fucking with them and he's not really taking them to, to prison, and then he goes, wipe off the cocaine from your face, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do any more of that. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was good stuff. And he tells Matthew, you know, this is your one get-out-of-jail-free card. 
you need to go out there and do something. Just take a shot. Matthew says, I don't even know where to aim. And he says, just take a shot. Just hearing the gun go off is fun sometimes. What you pointed out is not the best thing for a cop to say. Yes. If I hear a cop saying, just, just shoot, just to hear the gun go off, that's terrible. Granted, that was, I don't know, this movie was, how long ago was this released? Uh, well, it was made in 2007, so almost 10 years ago. Almost 10 years ago, maybe, you know, there was no way for them to know how bad it would look for a cop to say that these days yeah or maybe they did and that was that was them saying you, you yes these are the 80s and the 80s were great and the 80s were fucked up and when this movie's released you know and then 10 years from now it'll be also fucked up and great we return to the scene of the crime so to speak as we go back to kyle's party and they're finally getting ready to you know someone's gonna ride the ball and the guy they have up there chickens out at the last minute as it probably happens in every party. And lo and behold, Matthew, after you know finding Tori and telling her, I'm sorry, this is just, I just wanted to talk to you and get your phone number. She says, you're just like all these other scared little boys, which prompts him to volunteer to do the ball. Barry's about to do it, though. Cause yeah, he, he was he was getting ready to do it. He was, he'd found uh, uh, Buffy's sister again, and, and she, she seemed into him, but he was not, I guess it really was a life-changing experience, almost getting arrested for the yeah. cocaine. I like that the movie doesn't draw any sort of logical conclusion. It doesn't make any sense, really, that either Barry or Matthew would find... Like, riding the ball is not going to solve their problems, not on a logical level. But on a spiritual level, it does. Because they really they need a win. That's the whole thing. Even though they both had great times tonight, Matthew had sex on the trampoline, and, and Barry, well, his entire night has been a roller coaster of awesomeness... They're still. They need to be cheered on, and that's something that they can only get if they ride the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew gets gets there first, but I think that's again a lesser movie would have had. I keep forgetting Matthew's girl's name. Tori. Uh, Tori would have had Tori asking him to prove her law, his love for her by riding the ball. But no, this is something that's completely unrelated. It, he just decides to do it because he doesn't know what else to do. It just is to prove something to himself. Yeah, he he realizes that it's not about the girl or his dad or anybody else. He just needs to feel better about himself on his own. Before he hops in the ball, he delivers just this epic monologue of, you know, all the troubles of life and all the things that get you down and the fact that he works at Suncoast and lives with his parents. Just fuck it all, he says. Somebody from the crowd just just yells, "You suck." <laughs> But he manages to to just join them all together because right before then everybody's betting against him chickening against him doing it. They think that he's going to chicken out and not doing it. Like not do it like the the last guy. But they believe him, and he his last words were "fuck it," and then he gets in there and has the ride from hell. And you can tell the, that you're right by this that this isn't something they really do. Because they have no idea of like the path that he takes, and he's just smashing cars along the way. Right, Wendy, his sister, she tries to stop it. She's really worried about about this, and this is basically the final turning point of her relationship with with Chris Pratt. Because Chris Pratt couldn't give a shit about what could happen to Matthew. Yeah. He's, he just kind of tells her, "Don't worry about it. It's gonna roll. It's downhill, but then it's uphill, and you know how gravity works. It's 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 all gonna stop." <laughs> but then, of course, when it actually when they set it loose, the ball doesn't follow the path that they were planning. So it hits a few cars and then it just goes off road. Yeah. And eventually crashes through a residential fence and goes into a pool and, you know, shit gets drastic pretty quick. Cause we think that Matthew's about to drown in this thing. You know how, you know, your friends, your friends will run after you when the ball you're in 
goes rogue. And Barry's the only person that's running after the ball, calling his name out. A little further behind is Wendy and Tori. And this is also like the deep metaphor of he's just kind of drowning in life and doesn't know how to free himself because he's stuck there for quite a while. But he finally figures it out and... He frees himself, I think, both literally and figuratively. Yeah, a lot of people just fall over backwards for the opening of The Graduate when uh, Dustin Hoffman is in the pool wearing the, the diving suit and how that is is a metaphor about the, how he's directionless in life. And I'm sorry, but Take Me Home Tonight took that to another level. It actually made it funny. It made it more, more dynamic. And it had a, a better performance from Tougher Grace. I'm sorry, Dustin Hoffman, but your time has passed. The the torch or the ball in this situation has been yes. passed. He gets out, you know, scraped to hell, but he is looking like a real badass and then just walks up to Tori and asks for her phone number because that's what really this has all been about. And she gives it to him. Why wouldn't she at this point? Well, she, she scolds him a little bit and then she gives in because we all know that at this point, why wouldn't you? This is The, the guy wrote the ball. For you. Yeah. To prove something to you. Back at the house, Wendy tracks down Kyle and just dumps him pretty bluntly and brutally. And we get this what would be a sign of things to come as far as Parks and Rec overacting goes with um, Chris Pratt, you know, just crying and bawling his eyes out and acting like a real goofball. Yeah, and just, just like the, the, the everything, like pit like dripping from his mouth it's a full-on cry you were telling me that one of the reasons that they they had trouble marketing is because they didn't want to shy away from from the truth of the 80s and obviously chris pratt didn't want to shy away from the truth of crying in this one because usually movie crying is pretty crying you don't really get to see the ugly like the mucus and all the shit coming down your your face but he goes full-on crying in this one and it's it's pretty awesome it's like one of the crying scenes from blue is warmest color pretty much it's it's visceral and real yes that you really feel his pain the sun is rising and we go to the house at which the ball crashed through and bill michael bean the police officer is there on the scene and he finds matthew's suncoast name tag floating in the water and he gets this big smile on his face like he knows the revolution will go on. Yes, he's like, oh, my son finally did something. He broke the law and everything I stand for. But I'll, I'll give him another pass here because at least he, he made a choice. And I think that's the thing that the movie is telling you, that sometimes you have to do really dumb stuff to break out of your funk. You never know. You might accomplish your dream of nailing the most popular girl, your high school crush, by doing really stupid shit like lying uh, about who you are and then riding a big metal ball that could kill you. <laughs> Before we wrap things up, we go back to the house and get one last shot of Barry and Ashley, Michelle Trachtenberg. As she said, come find me at the end of the night. And it's the wee hours of the morning, but they're there. She's smoking weed. And, uh, you know, he's sitting there and saying, this is crazy. You know, I, I don't know what it, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know who I am. I need to find myself. And she says, I think that's what college is for. And it's also for this and kisses him. Yeah, and you get that that brief moment of, of panic where, especially if you've watched Buffy, because the movie hasn't been shy about nudity. I mean, you saw boobs earlier, whatever, and you're like, oh my God, I'm about to see Dawn Summers take her shirt off because I don't think I can handle that. But luckily, they cut away before it gets too serious. And it also is like a teaser for a sequel that we unfortunately never got because Dan Fogler looks like he realizes, oh, I need to go to college now. This could have been, yeah, the next movie was Dan Fogler in, in college doing more coke. It would have been awesome. <laughs> but, sure, I think he graduates. He's probably doing meth by the time he gets to coke. It'll be like a, an exploration of the early 90s. Well, he has to drop the expensive drugs because he's paying his way through college. Right. But Ashley and Barry are making out as we you know go back outside 
and Wendy and Matthew are there. Matthew says, you know, who wants to get breakfast? And then Barry comes running out, and his hair is kind of back to normal. It's like the cycle of life, you know. It went through a lot of stages, but it's back to normal, and it's a new day. That's when the credits roll. Perfect. Perfection. Maybe the only thing that would have gotten, made it better if they, you actually saw him pulling up to a, a Waffle House or an IHOP or a Denny's even. But I don't know. Did, did any of those exist in the 80s? I wasn't here, so I wouldn't know. Absolutely. There's always somewhere that you can have breakfast. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, great movie. Great movie. I, I think I'm ready for real talk. T-shirts, T-shirts, T-shirts. Hundreds of thousands of wrestling T-shirts, all for you to buy. Starring all of your favorite wrestlers. Daniel Bryan, Bret Hart Goes to Montreal, Some Dead Guy, The Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lanza, Not Wyndham and Bradshaw. Wrestling! SmartsLikeUs.com, SmartsLikeUs.com, SmartsLikeUs.com. Selling you wrestling T-shirts. Also available, buttons, stickers, and kitty cats. Meow. All right, so Julio, I think you have some quotes for us there i got i had to dig deep to find some love for take me home tonight which, it's a shame guess, it's, it's a bummer rl schaefer from ign dvd says take me home tonight is a much deeper dramatic movie than most give it give it credit for and it's also a hoot too largely thanks to dan fogler and the amusing cameo appearances a hoot a hoot uh, David Edwards from Daily Mirror UK says, Refreshingly, for a comedy of any decade, the characters are all likable, particularly Grace, who gives his best performance since 2004's overlooked rom-com In Good Company. Do you like In Good Company? I've never seen In Good Company. Yeah, it's, no. uh, I don't know what it's had. Maybe we should do it. It's, it's got a good cast. It's, uh, it, it's good. He is likable. Ken McIntyre from Total Film says, A potential cult hit in the making. Call this dazed and confused for the members only set. And <laughs> I haven't seen dazed and confused. Uh, really? Yeah. I, I, was about to say, I don't see Take Me Home Tonight getting a Criterion release, but. <laughs> you never know. Give it some time. Yeah. Friend Wilkins from Real Talk Movie Reviews says this film succeeds just barely, not by poking fun at the 80s, but by embracing the charm of its endearing lead actors, which I think it's it's true. And then the final one is Dustin Putman from TheFilmFile.com, who simply says, an 80s movie lover's wet dream. Hmm. <laughs> That's a, that, was, that was listed as a fresh review? Yes. Okay. <laughs> he really likes the 80s, I guess. All right. So, Take Me Home Tonight was released on March 4th, 2011. It was directed by Michael Dowes of Goon fame. A Ooh. fantastic film. That was released uh, within the same year, I believe. It was written by Jackie and Jeff Filgo. The only reason I wrote that down is because they also wrote for that '70s show. So, like, it was. Oh, so I saw when we were looking at the credits, I saw the story. Like, Topher Grace had a story by credit. Yeah. So I guess in between takes, they were just shooting the shit, and I was like, what do, you, "Do you remember the '80s? Yeah. Yes, they were awesome." Was, Let's do that. Yeah. So that it was a second collaboration with them. Uh, it was finished, as we mentioned several times before in the first portion, in 2007, but it was originally a universal film, and they shelved it because they were uncomfortable with the gratuitous cocaine use and it not being portrayed in, like, a bad way. I'm like, I'm sorry. That, that's, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. Topher Grace and the director, Michael Dow's reasoning for it was too many movies about the 80s parody the 80s instead of actually making a movie that would seem like it was in the 80s. And especially in that portion of it, the mid to late 80s, like an infant, but cocaine was very prevalent and they wanted to display that. But Universal was uncomfortable with it not being portrayed in a negative way. So they shelved it until 
Relativity Media's subsidiary Rogue picked it up for $10 million. I think, uh, oh no, that's pretty dumb. And it sounds just like a line. I think that more than likely they just saw the movie and they're like, you know what? This is good enough, but it's not like Topher Grace is, is, is a huge attraction. Anna Ferris is a huge attraction or or Dan Fogger. Their big, think, their big excuse was we don't know how to market it since right, it's like but, a youth-based comedy, but there's like positive portrayal of cocaine, which yeah, is not really positive. No, but. it's not really positive. I mean, you can't really say, despite everything we said in the previous segment, you can't really say that anything actually good happens because of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, I think it was more of the fact that they just probably realized they had a, a decent comedy that didn't have any any big stars in it. Maybe when they did it, when they made it, Topher Grace was still like more the 70s of a draw. show ended in like oh four oh five or something. Yeah, so. I don't know. Or maybe it was made by somebody that was not working there anymore by the time it was time to release the movie. I don't know. But to just say, oh, it's because of cocaine's being portrayed as this positive thing. One, that's wrong, and two, it seems like a very flimsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because why wouldn't you say the same? And I'm not saying that 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 weed and cocaine are the same. But if you go like, how many like. Pineapple Express. Exactly. How many pot comedies have we had that certainly don't come even close to hinting at, at pot being anywhere near, you know, harmful to you? Yeah. In in studios suddenly don't have a problem with that? Well, to be fair, cocaine can kill you. Well, yeah, but I'm saying it, that is that doesn't happen in this movie at all. But not when Dan Fogler's doing it. It's too damn funny. Right. But, but also, like, they almost die. So it's not like yeah. the movie is really telling you cocaine is good, whereas you could argue that the... Like something like Pineapple Express is telling you, hey, weed is awesome. Yeah. So it's not the same message. It's, it, it, this was not. I think you're right. I think they just felt they were kind of weren't going to recoup their budget, so they were going to try to sell it for what yeah. they were. Because I, that curious. budget was $19 million. <laughs> and at the box office, the film only made $7.6 million. Uh, it was a big flop. But I'm, I'm more curious about what made them finally release it. I, that's the thing. After four years, it, it's not like. In that time, we were talking about when we were record or when we were watching it, the Cabin in the Woods thing. Because Chris Hemsworth became huge, that's why it got bought and released. Whereas this, it's not like between 2007 and 2011, any of those people became big enough to warrant. But I saw that Topher Grace was in Predators, and they're like, "Oh, this will Which, let's, let's piggyback on that." To be honest, he's awesome in that. I agree, but but is he awesome enough to to warrant ten million dollars off him? Yeah. No. Um, Maybe I don't know when Mom started on TV, but maybe Anna Ferris. No, that was that was way before Anna Ferris got her own TV show. Yeah, and Anna Ferris kind of had a name already. It it's a really good. Unfor- I don't mean to say it like negatively, but B list cast type thing, right. especially at that time. Like obviously, yeah, it, Chris it sounds, Pratt is a fucking star now. But. Yeah, it sounds very demeaning to call it the B cast, but it's just that none of them would actually, they're not box office draws. And Topher Grace never became what a lot of people thought he was going to be. He's and still really good. No, yeah. It, it's we, just we'll a matter get in, of like box office yeah, bankability. We'll, we'll get yeah. into the actual like quality of this film here in a minute, but just talking from like an outside perspective, I think a lot of people, especially after that 70s show, thought he was going to be like a big box office attraction and it just didn't happen. Well, it was like I said, Ben Stiller refused to give up the, <laughs> the throne. So. And that uh, we were talking about the opening credits. Teresa Palmer, she was supposed to be something, right? Yeah, and, and you know, I was pretty sure that I'd seen her in something else, and I finally looked her up after the movie, and she was in uh, This Is... No, no, I Am Number Four. She yeah, is, that was like her first big one, and that was supposed to be like her case to launching pen. Yeah, I Am Number Four is pretty terrible. 
She was also in what was the zombie movie? A Warm Bodies. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. I didn't finish seeing it, uh, watching it. It was. It didn't seem that great from what I watched, but I could be wrong. But it's still. I mean, I don't know. Again, you see her, and you're like, "Well, who is that again?" Yeah. She's good in this movie. Everybody's great in this movie. Which leaves quite the perplexing head scratcher that it's at twenty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yes. What the fuck are you critics thinking? I, I, the the biggest. The biggest complaint I saw just from skimming through the reviews was we've seen this before and yeah. it was done better. So fuck this movie. Like, okay, that's not a twenty eight percent. If you're going by you, you know, why would you? That's how jaded are you that you can't just enjoy this movie? Well, especially me? coming off of our last episode where it was Slumdog Millionaire where you and I both said we've seen this done before and done better. <laughs> yes. So it's like but that's ninety whatever percent, one best picture and all that shit. It's it really this kind of stuff is where it really comes into play the whole mission statement of our podcast to prove like art is very subjective and also it's so elitist and picky choosy what yeah it, it's just that you know it didn't have any any major stars it was not delivering any sort of like social message that 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 anybody could get behind yeah. it's just a movie about a bunch of young people having fun and being funny there are like stupid side plots like that one Dude, I cannot stand Lucy Punch. That's that, is that that's her, name? her. Yeah, that's, she's from Dinner with Schmucks. That's the only thing I remember her from. Who does she play in Dinner with Schmucks? I don't remember. I just remember her being in that. She is. Everybody loves her. Like she's like a, a fairly well known comedian, I guess. If you're, if that's you're her name. Pro- the girl that was like wanting to get with Topher Grace. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. The entire movie. She's she was in a TV show not long ago. One that got canceled. But she's also. She's a bunch of stuff. I, she's in a Woody Allen movie. I think she's in a You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger. I don't know. I just I don't find her funny. I don't either. She she, she kind of gets on my nerves. She certainly got on my nerves in this movie. So yeah, like that's a stupid side plot. Right. But but I mean most movies will have those. Yeah. I'm not saying this movie deserves to be in the 90s. No. But 28% is it's like offensively if you were if you were personally offended by the movie then I would understand. You were like, "Well, you know, I lived in the 80s and my parties were never like this." So fuck you movie. Yeah. It's an, but no, it, it's it's really weird. Because again, can you really tell me that you watched this movie and you didn't laugh, and, and laugh more often than I laughed movies? more in our watching for this recording than I remembered laughing the first time? <laughs> and like Dan Fogler is such an easy and deserving punchline for being like a shitty like typecast actor. He's really funny in this. He's amazing. He's just so good when he does coke for the first time and he comes up and there's coke all over his nose. <laughs> That and that scene we were talking about where he's pretending to talk to his boss on the phone, bottom line it for me, like that. Yeah. And then there's this shot of him. It's not like a line, but it's this visual gag at the end where uh, Wendy finds out that Matthew slept with Tori and she turns to him yes. and he gives this nod of approval. It's yeah. so fucking great. The problem with Dan Fogler is he was in Good Luck Chuck and that's just something you don't come away from. <laughs> it, it would take it would take ten more Take Me Home Tonight before you can uh, get past that. Maybe but, you know he was in, in in a few episodes of Hannibal. We were really? just talking about Hannibal earlier, and uh, yeah, he he. I mean, it was a kind of a serious role. He was not there for comic relief. He played kind of a pathetic guy, but he was he was there. I mean, he was people still thinking about Dan Fogler and booking him for shit. Uh, yeah, and that's the main thing. He's really funny in this, and. We, I wasn't really trying to be sarcastic earlier when I... Anna Ferris is very polished in this. It's one of the... 
few roles she's ever had because all her comedy roles are her like turned up to like 11 and supposed to be like Ooh, and very over the top where she's like yeah, she's pretty much a, the straight character in this. Right. She she always plays like super dumb yeah. or – but here she – yeah, you're right. She's the straight character. She doesn't even go – they didn't even try to explore her looks. I personally think she's really cute. Yeah. And, and in this movie, they kind of dress her down. I don't, know, I don't know if it's on purpose or if it's sort of like an unfortunate side effect of, of just – her not being all made up and being 80s. surrounded by yeah, it's yeah. like she's eighties, uh, but she's great. She's great. I, I really every time I, I wasn't kidding. Every time I see a movie with her in it, I really I'm always wishing for something better. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen an episode of Mom, but the fact that it's still it's on its second or third season, I'm like good for her. She's she's still out there. She's still working, and I'm I'm happy that she's doing something. Like yeah. for Grace. <laughs> no, uh, he's uh, he's in that new movie coming out, uh, American Ultra. He which... was. Oh, is he? Yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to that. But yeah, he was in Interstellar, and I guess you didn't hear my Interstellar story when I saw that uh, the Bob Bullock Museum. Which, if you're not in Austin, Texas, and listening to our podcast, the Bob Bullock Museum was this really like. Uh, it was the only IMAX theater left in the city of Austin, like real IMAX, real IMAX. Yeah, and it's no longer there. Um, so Interstellar was the last movie that Interstellar was the last real IMAX movie to play there. And I went there. It was a holiday I went there for. Right. Maybe Veterans Day. But whatever it was, I went there. And it was a pretty crowded showing of it. And there's a part at the end. This bums me out because you don't remember Tover Grace being in there. When Casey Affleck goes insane and he's going to come back to like beat the shit out of Jessica Chastain. And Topher Grace is going to protect her. And Christopher Nolan's a brilliant director. But I don't know what the fuck he was thinking here. There's this shot of a silhouetted Topher Grace. And he goes into the back of this truck and he pulls out a tire iron and he stands there as the sun setting trying to look super tough. I busted out laughing so hard and like all these people turned around and stared at me. I obviously I'm obnoxious, but I was like, Chris Nolan, you made the dark night. Now you've got fucking Eric Foreman out there with his tire iron trying to look tough. But all that aside, yeah, Topher Grace comes across great in this and he's never, I, I kind of feel bad that he's like a punchline amongst some people because He's never made anything explicitly bad, and I find him to be funny. He kind of does play the same character and everything, but it works. A lot of people do. A lot of stars do. And it's just... So it comes out to the quality of the movies. And even in this case, I think this movie has... is much better quality than people give it credit for. So it's really... You can't say... If you tell me that you don't like it because of Topher Grace's performance, then you have an inherent problem with Topher Grace, not yeah. with the movie. It's what I say when people don't like certain Ben Stiller movies. I just tell them, well... Do you like Ben Stiller to begin with? Because there's a certain style of comedy, and if you're not, if you're not cool with that, then yeah, of course you're gonna hate the movie. It's like your inherent problem with Jonah Hill. Yes, I mean you know he sucks, therefore <laughs> I hate him. Uh, no, he doesn't suck all the time. He just he tends to make shitty movies. The three main leads come across really good. Michael Bain, who I read uh, Topher Grace called personally because he was such a big fan of him to ask him to be in it. Very good in all his parts, but like we were saying, it was probably on set for six hours because <laughs> yes. his scenes are quick and to the point. Um, no, no joking at all in the first person, the first portion. Dimitri Martin it has the funniest scenes in the movie. He is so good. He, I've forgotten about him too. When when I think I of too. Yeah, 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 when I think of Take Me Home Tonight, I think of Topher uh, Grace being really awkward. I think of wind sailing or wind surfing. And I think of cocaine and Dan Fogler. I never, I, I didn't remember that Michael Ian Black was in it. I didn't remember that that uh, Dimitri was in it. I didn't even had made the connection of, of uh, 
Theresa Palmer from I Am Number Four yeah. being in it. Like, oh, and I think of, uh, of course, my girl. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> We're just talking about her. Anna Ferris? Yes, Anna okay. Ferris. I think of Anna Ferris being there in a more low-key role than usual. And at the time, I didn't know who Chris Pratt was, just like everybody else. Yeah, and like we were reading about in researching this, he and Anna Ferris met on this, and they were married two years later, and they're still married to this day. Yes, I mean, give them credit for that. Give the movie credit for that, at least. <laughs> at least that At least that should put it to like a 60%. <laughs> yeah, come on. Happy couple in Hollywood, still married. But yeah, Dimitri Martin, his comedy is kind of hit or miss with me, but... It literally is on screen for probably like 90 seconds total, but his dry, just droll delivery is yeah, fucking brilliant. Yeah, gets, he gets golden lines like all throughout, and then he leaves before he has time to fuck anything up. Yeah. So it's just, it's perfect. That one he says, because he's like kind of going back and forth in his wheelchair, and he says, I have mixed feelings about hills now. I was like, that's fucking fantastic. It, his exit line in that scene was like, watch out, moonwalking here. <laughs> just, yeah, he's he's great. And I, I like, I think overall the movie, that's the other concern that, that, a lot of reviews pointed out it was like why did it need to be in the 80s you know it's like you could have told this story in present day and it was still kind of the same and I'm like yes that's true but I think that being in the 80s allows one for the soundtrack which I think is awesome two I think that cocaine jokes don't play as well it wouldn't be as funny you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's like, yeah, you could have him have cocaine here in the year 2015 or even like the early 2000s. And it's kind of funny, but it's not a big deal. It, it makes it funnier, the fact that it's the late 80s. Yeah. The cocaine was it such makes it a more, big deal. It makes it more reasonable and less of a plot point also. Like, obviously the punchline is he's like strung out on cocaine, ha ha ha, but... It makes it more reasonable because, like, we didn't know. If they try to do it like it was a comedy in the 2000s, like, oh, we found cocaine, let's try it, and it'll just turn into traffic. Like, it's just like... <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think there's also... I mean, granted, this movie is a few years old, but even then, just it being said in the late 80s frees you from all the this stuff about social media mm-hmm. and all these things that we live with now where you can't just lie about who you are yeah, <laughs> as easily. It's one of those things, too. You look at a movie like Adventureland that's set in the 80s, there's no fucking reason that movie has to be set in the 80s, but it is for reasons like that. And that was, like, critically acclaimed and right. beloved and stuff. You don't have to worry about cell phones, you know, smartphones or whatever. It's just, like, you can just tell the story. Obviously, and Adventureland's probably more guilty of this than exploiting, like, the music of the 80s is, like, a big, like, turn-on for the movie and stuff. Right. Here it's a great fun. movie, but, yeah. Eh, no, it's all right. It's all right. It's Ryan Reynolds' crowning achievement. <laughs> Well, yeah, but that 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 makes it a high a high number on the Ryan Reynolds meter, but not necessarily on the overall movie. On the Kristen Stewart meter, <laughs> Kristen Stewart, which by the way, Teresa Palmer. Like I told you, you may not see it, but I keep seeing her as a blonde Kristen Stewart in the battle of squirrely looking women. Kristen Stewart won. <laughs> it came down to that casting of Snow White, and you know she she lost. Yeah, and it's it seems like that's a moot thing to complain about, and it seems like just. I don't quite know why it didn't connect. I know why it didn't like shatter at the box office because there's nothing really there is nothing new or no big names in this, but that doesn't make it a bad movie. Right. It, it it's just it won't be an exceptional movie, but it's a uh, uh, a lot of fun. And it's like I was I was watching it and I'm like I don't even have the 80s connection in a way because it's not as if I grew up in the 80s. I mean, I was born in the 80s, but a lot of, you know, these songs and and all, all they're just good songs. Right, they're just good. I mean, I heard them in the 90s. I, I was not really paying attention during the 80s. I don't know, you know, 
make the take me home tonight set in the 90s and i'll tell you if it's better or not but yeah. but it's just the 80s themselves it's called just... empire records oh yeah that's right okay which well, you can go back to episode eight for that one yes so we like our our <laughs> our, our decades old settings I think they just add flavor, but they're not necessarily. Ultimately, I think that the movie succeeds just because, like one of those quotes I read, the cast is really good. Mm -hmm. The cast has really good coming timing, starting with Topher Grace and going all the way down the line to, you know, Chris Pratt or Dimitri, what's his name? Dimitri Martin. Yeah, Michael Bean, even. That's what makes the movie work. That, they get funny lines, funny moments, and you even have sort of a universal. Uh, universal theme, which is the whole okay. I'm out of college. I don't know what to do with my life. Yeah. How Hi. You, I, <laughs> I think Topher Grace should have started the podcast. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Topher Grace in this. I am Matthew Franklin. <laughs> there you go. Except that he didn't have those those avenues. You know. Yeah. That's why they said in the '80s, so he couldn't have the easy out of doing a podcast. A podcast, <laughs> a, a, a podcast about partying. Michael Dow is obviously like we talked about. His big other film, I read through his filmography, and Goon was the only one that stuck out, which is weird because these are two completely tonally different films. Right. I and to do back to back, that. like it's very interesting. Well, I guess he didn't do it back to back. He did Take Me Home Tonight, and then by the time Take Me Home Tonight was released years later, uh, I guess, yeah. To come out. But yeah, very tonally different. And even your personal feelings aside of Goon, uh, Solid direction in both of them, I feel like. I guess. I don't know. I have. I, I didn't even finish watching Goon, so I really i am not qualified. To... Oh, didn't you turn it off and put on Warrior instead? Yes. And Warrior was great. So overall... One of the, like, I like Warrior, but you want to talk about a cliche-written film <laughs> that lacks good direction. But yeah, this, I just don't... The 28%, I guess you and I will just forever be baffled by it. It should be at least 70%. I mean, I'm not saying it needs to be in the 90s, but but 70% at the very least, and maybe even more, because I, I want to talk to them, like those reviewers, and like tell me one thing that this movie does badly, like really badly, and and then I probably find that thing in something else that you gave a higher score to. Mm -hmm. You know, if you complain about, oh no, well, Dan Fogler's dance scene was stupid. I was okay. Well, I'll find you stupid dance scenes everywhere. Yeah, it's one of those. It just it seems like. If it had just another cloak draped over it, people would have liked it and connected with it. Right. Just get somebody else to play. I mean, Topher Grace was great, but get a bigger star and then maybe that would be, it would be better received. Because you want to talk about like films in the vein of this, like the youth-based R-rated comedy. It's like, this is much more competently made than like American Pie films or any of those. Yeah, I would actually agree. It, it works better. I mean, I like the first American Pie okay, but the fact that they kept going for like three or four movies after that, it's insane. It's just weird because like going back to our last episode, we just talked about like the positives of the film. Are, you could list the same here. It's competently made. It's well acted. Um, nothing too outlandish goes on, but one of them was like one of the most celebrated movies of all time. <laughs> and this one's Take Me Home Tonight. Should we start a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter to get the sequel where Dan Fogler it's, goes to college? We have to reach out to Dan Fogler first. I would hate to like go through all that work. And, and then, then him say no. Yeah, they have Fogler go like, I'm over it. <laughs> it hurts too much. It hurt too much the first time. I don't want to go through this again. What's his standing right now? I don't even know. What was the last movie he was in? Fogler? Yeah. Uh, dude, I... I saw him in Hannibal, and that's the last time I saw him in anything. I'm sure he has something going on. When I was going through the, I was through his IMDb earlier, there was that movie, the Don Piotti, mm -hmm. and uh, I remember seeing that that got like really bad reviews. I mean, I didn't watch it, but I remember seeing that it got really bad reviews. 
but it's also like an independent comedy. So I know what his last big release was. He's due for a for a new a new hit. It, this proves that he is actually funny. Like a lot of things, especially that abomination. Good luck, Chuck. Tried to force like a comedic <laughs> performance out of him, but he's funny here. Topher Grace, from what I understand, made a fucking shit ton of money on uh, that '70s show. So, so he really has hence he, his sporadic projects. Yeah, he can just chill out and wait until something feels like like it would be good. Chris Pratt, I think he turned out all right. Yeah, I mean, he was struggling last year. Then he got like a good movie, and that'll probably last him for a couple of years. Not Chris Pratt, but Dan Fogler. He's part of my dream team of comedy. <laughs> I always say somebody should make a movie with Dan Fogler, Josh Gad, and Clark Duke. Just three Good chubby God. guys really being funny going on a road trip or something. Two of those guys are actually funny, though, and the other one's Josh Gad. You need to watch. I will make it my mission in life to find the Josh Gad movie that you like. And he was funny it. on that episode of Modern Family he was on. I'll say that. Well, that's a start. Yeah. That's a start. Maybe uh, I mean, I'll find a bootleg of the Book of Mormon or something. He's He can be really funny. Clark Duke's very funny. He, he got dealt a bad hand by being in the last two seasons of The Office, but he's a funny <laughs> dude. Um, so you said high 70s, mid 70s for this? Mid event? 70s, yeah, at the very least. Maybe even low 80s. Like a B minus? I, I guess. Oh, that's I, right. You don't know the, I, the grading, I, the American grading scale. Yeah, it's completely inoffensive and well made. In a good way. Good party movie. Uh, yeah. If I had a party, I'd have it in the background. We'd stop every time that Dan Fogler came on. Yeah. Hey, watch this. All right, Julio, got anything to plug this week? Fuck, I did, and I don't remember now. You know, BattleBots is over. So, uh, so not that. Slime Masters podcast hosted by John Golson. It's at guttersandpanels.com. It's also available on iTunes. And, well, our usual information, which is uh, we're on iTunes, which uh, means that you can subscribe and you can rate us and review us there. We also have our website, wearethecontrarians.com. You can listen to podcasts there. You can also look at funny pictures. We have an email address if you want to email us and tell us that you were really offended by the cocaine use in Take Me Home Tonight and you are a recovering cocaine addict and this movie really put you in a bad mood and you completely agree with 28%. Or if you're Dan Fogler and want to get that Kickstarter in motion. That too. Yes, please, Dan Fogler, contact us. It's uh, wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. SoundCloud too, just search for The Contrarians. On iTunes, it's The Contrarians, not The Contrarians Podcast. So this was episode 17 of The Contrarians and for episode 18, we will be doing David O. Russell's, is that the late 90s? This, oh, uh, Three Kings. Yes. yes. Three Kings. Uh, I think so. To coincide with the release of Straight Outta Compton and Ice Cube's big success, we will be visiting... That was the only movie we felt comfortable doing <laughs> that starred Ice Cube. That was also highly rated, so... Yeah. yeah I gladly yeah. would have done Anaconda, but, you know, wasn't an option here. So episode 18 will be Three Kings, but in the meantime, that was Take Me Home Tonight, and that's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash Avnio Films. 
that's O-V-N-I-O Films, and check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by the Contrarian's very own Julio Oliveira.